All right, everybody, today's episode is sponsored by Blind Barrels, a company that offers an exclusive blind whiskey tasting experience. Bob and I tried their product in season six, and it led directly to this ad because we are such huge fans of what they are doing. If you are interested in sampling the very best in American craft whiskey, then use our code FILM10 at their checkout for 10% off a yearly or quarterly subscription or even off a single box to try it out. And remember, if you're hunting for rare whiskeys, you can always buy the whiskey you've tried on their website, often at prices cheaper than MSRP. Check them out at blindbarrels.com and use code FILM10 for 10% off on your order. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 2008, director and star Clint Eastwood gave the world a gritty drama about how to gain a backbone and be a real man. In 2023, we return to a flight of five whiskeys from Buffalo Trace. The film is Gran Torino. The whiskey is Benchmark Single Barrel. And we'll review them both. This is the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are wrapping up our mini-series of films by director Clint Eastwood with his 2008 film Gran Torino. Brad, before we dive into anything else today, I gotta get your like immediate reaction having just watched this movie. Mm-hmm. Thoughts on these three Eastwood films? Do they feel kind of like of a piece, do they feel very different from each other? Like, are we going to have themes that are consistent throughout all three here? That's an interesting question. I think that Mystic River stands out, partially because Clint's not in it. Like, that definitely makes a difference. But Gran Torino kind of feels like, I don't know, the the baby boomer version of Unforgiven. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Like. Like he he's been around the block a few times. He's back for one last rodeo. <laughs> I think it's more like you know the greatest generation version more than even yeah. the baby boomer version. But I'm with you, man. You know, over the last couple of weeks, I've been kind of kicking around this theory that I don't know if it's really a theory or if it's just generally accepted knowledge that ever since Unforgiven, his directorial output has really kind of all revolved around the themes of the effects of violence and that and violence can be interpreted a number of ways in Unforgiven. It's, you know, literal handgun murder violence in movies like, I don't know, Changeling. It's violence that's inflicted upon people by corrupt systems in Mystic River. It's sexual violence in this movie. It's racial violence and, you know, the the effects of war, which is something he also touched on in the two movies he made prior to this. I really do think when you view any one of Eastwood's movies post Unforgiven through the lens of how is this movie about the lasting impact and effects of violence? It really did help me reframe 
a number of his movies, and it actually gave me a much greater appreciation for this movie than I would have expected coming into it. Mm -hmm. You know, Brad, I'd seen this movie when it first came out, and I thought that it was a much more simplistic and kind of frankly, like amateurish movie than some of the ones that he had been making. You know, he wins the Oscar, obviously, for Million Dollar Baby. And then he has this incredibly ambitious back to back two movie stretch where he does Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima, which basically tell uh, the opposite sides of the story of Iwo Jima from the American and the Japanese side of things. And they're both really brilliant movies in their own right. But for Clint to take on something that ambitious, especially at that age, I think people were really like lauding him just for the attempt in that way. And then mm -hmm. Gran Torino comes out. And I think because it was so different and it seemed like such a return to form and it was on such a smaller scale, I actually think people swung the pendulum too far the other way and they weren't willing to go along with Clint and what he wanted to tackle in this movie. And they basically just dismissed it as like, oh, it's Dirty Harry as an old man. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would have thought about that, especially the Dirty Harry reference. I mean, I've only ever seen the first Dirty Harry, so maybe there's you know stuff in the other ones that would point towards mm -hmm. this being a continuation. Yeah, I think but, it's more uh, just like the you know guy taking matters into his own hands, the political incorrectness of it, like the fact that he's driving a Ford, the fact that like, he's doing the growly Clint voice again. You know, yeah. there's just a number of things that it seems like in a lot of ways. I actually think he's using this movie to comment on uh, Dirty Harry and not relive Dirty Harry. Yeah, that's interesting to me. I, I think for me, Gran Torino is a movie that when I came into it, I knew almost nothing about Clint. This might be my first Eastwood film I'd ever seen mm. when it came out. So this was like my introduction to to Clint. And I remember walking away from this film just thinking, wow, he knows how to play a racist guy really well. <laughs> that was that was That's my the big 18, takeaway. Yeah. That was 18-year-old Brad's <laughs> takeaway from this film. We'll save that for Brad Explains, which we'll get to in a minute. But before we get there, <laughs> we have a guest today that's been patiently waiting here on the other end of the line. His name is Noah Gattel. He's joining us for the first time. He is a film critic for Washington City Paper. He has bylines that have appeared in The Ringer, The Atlantic. LA Review of Books. He's been in GQ. The guy's been all over the place. He's one of my favorite follows on Twitter. Noah, how are you today? I'm great. And I was listening to your theory with great interest. I I'd love to know how Space Cowboys fits into the consequences of violence. <laughs> <laughs> it's violence against the ozone layer, man. Come on. <laughs> I totally forgot that Eastwood directed that movie. He directed it. He also directed uh, Bridges of Madison County uh, yep. in the, this time, Midnight yep. in the Garden of Good and Evil. Um, I really like your theory. I just think every every now and then in his filmography, he stepped out to make like a kind of silly movie. And maybe we just need to like bring it a little closer. It's like every movie post Mystic River follows this theory. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Noah's going to help us break down this movie because, Brad, if I'm being frank, I think this is. The trickiest movie of the three to review, even though mm -hmm. last week's movie was about, you know, people dressing as cops and priests and molesting children. And like this this movie, I think if you read it at surface value or at surface level and face value, I think it is hashtag problematic. And mm. I think you can easily dismiss what the movie's really trying to say. 
because it is really deeply buried in a not very good script and uh, underneath a ton of racial slurs. And yet, however, I think Eastwood is not just trying to comment on those things, but he's actively using that form to comment on like he did with Unforgiven on himself, on his own career, on America. I really walked away from this movie having a ton of respect for what Eastwood did as a director, especially, like I said, taking a script that I don't think is that good and doing a lot with it. Well, I was just going to say, I think I think his presence makes it better just because for all those reasons, Mm -hmm. you know, when Eastwood is in a movie these days, it's it's not just a movie. It's a, a comment on the evolution of the Eastwood persona. You know, he has been this symbol, like as you rightly point out, of violence, of off, often of American violence, sometimes of state violence, uh, you know, in the Dirty Harry movies. And um, I think in the hands of someone else, you know, Roger Ebert in his review mentioned maybe one other person who could have played this role would have been someone like James Garner. But he points mm-hmm. out, you know, he's probably too nice. And Clint Eastwood is not really nice at his core. Uh, so I think in the hands of anyone else, it would have been pretty close to a disaster. But when you add this other layer of we are watching Eastwood comment on his own persona, that makes the whole thing go down a lot smoother because we're almost a little detached from it that way. I think it's a good point. And I guess I want to ask you this because Brad and I have been you know, like circling the drain with it a little bit for the last couple of weeks. But Eastwood commenting on his own persona and in some ways, I don't want to say condemning it, but definitely contextualizing it. And, you know, like in the case of Unforgiven, it does seem like he kind of comes down on the side of like sometimes these horrific acts of violence are necessary. And yet you can't divorce necessary acts from the effect that it has on a person's soul after the fact, even if it was necessary. I guess my question is with a movie like Gran Torino that came out to, you know, pretty substantial critical acclaim and was one of the biggest hits of his career. Why do you think that for the most part, general audiences seem to miss the fact that he's commenting on these things and continue to read them as if he's like championing them? I don't know. Does that does that question make sense? Yeah. I mean, I don't remember what the reaction was at the time from the public. I mean, this movie was a, was a big hit, so people liked it. But, you know, did they like it because they liked that he was racist or did they like it because he <laughs> stopped being racist? You know, I don't actually know. But I do I do think the timing of the movie is really important. You know, this film did come out in 2008, as you pointed out, in December of 2008. A very significant event happened in America in November of 2008, which right. was the election of of our first black president. And I think maybe at the time it was just a little bit hard to get past all of the racial slurs and to get past the white saviorism, although white saviorism would would continue in film for some time after this. There aren't a lot of examples um, where the character is really as kind of as bigoted and as prejudiced and as vile as he Mm -hmm. is early on in this film. And. I think, you know, if the film had come out 20 years ago or 20 years before that, it might have those those things might not have been as much of an issue. But one month after the election of Barack Obama, I'm not sure if the Academy was interested in this. I'm not sure people really wanted to celebrate it, even if they kind of couldn't deny that it had a certain power. Yeah. The fascinating thing to me is that, you know, on a budget of 33 million, which, you know, Clint always keeps himself on a low budget. Uh, this made 148 million domestic and 121 million worldwide. 
Wow. So this wasn't like, you know, coming in just under 270 million. So it's not like this film only played in America. Like it played overseas and made some good money out there as well. I think yeah, they, I they like Eastwood in Europe, if memory serves. And this film was nominated for the César Award at like the French Oscars for their like best non-French film. So oh, they liked it at least. The yeah, least... I know that. I think Eastwood shared Khan the year that Pulp Fiction won the Palme d'Or. So like they have always really embraced Eastwood, at, not just as an actor and like a, an icon of cinema, you know, from the, you know, the uh, Calle du Cinema days, but. Like as an auteur, I really think that they examine his movies at a much deeper level than American audiences typically do. And speaking of examining movies really deeply, our resident film critic here, <laughs> Brad G, uh, has seen this movie for what, the second time now, Brad? Uh, I think this is my third time. OK, wow. That, man, that might be a record for you, dude. Yeah, <laughs> it very well could be. <laughs> so if you're new to the show... The conceit of our show is that uh, I grew up a huge movie nerd. Brad grew up not watching quite as many films as I did. And so I took the opportunity to introduce him to some of my favorite movies and some classics that he had as blind spots. And we've just continued on with it for seven seasons now. But what that usually means is that Brad has seen the movie just for the first time. And because of that, we instituted a little segment that we like to call Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plots with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. That's right. Brad Explains, the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. Brad, as you know, you get 60 seconds on the clock to explain the plot of Gran Torino. Uh, I have my finger on the sensor button ready to go because I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how much trouble you're going to get us in with this movie, but you have one minute and go. Clint Eastwood is playing a older gentleman named Walt Kowalski, Kowalski, who has just lost lost his wife. He lives in a neighborhood that has slowly changed over time and largely has a minority Hmong population living in it. His new neighbors are a young Hmong family who slowly endears uh, themselves to him, mostly through the use of food and attention. But he takes a young man named Tao under his wing to, to help keep him away from the gangs that are trying to lure him in. And this becomes violent after a while, leading to Clint going to confession for the first time in probably 87 years uh, with a very young, crappy priest named uh, <laughs> Father Janovich. And he then goes and sacrifices himself like Jesus uh, so that Tao <laughs> will be able to have a future. Is that how the story of Jesus goes? I mean, he lies on the ground in crucifix that's true or, or cruciform it, it is say. uh yeah it's pretty hard to miss that that symbolism there at the end of the <laughs> it's as close to a literal white savior movie as i think we've ever <laughs> yeah had. well i mean and like the there's like blood like spilling out from under his wrists yes like he like he got pierced in the hands for our transgressions <laughs> Oh, man, this is going to go off the rails real quick today, you guys. We've, we've got a lot to talk about. Brad, I'm going to let you steer the ship here because there's a lot of things. I have many thoughts on this movie, a movie that I will say I liked quite a bit and was not expecting to after the first, say, 35 minutes of this movie. Uh, but there's many directions we can go. So where do you want to start today? I I want to get 
the bad stuff out of the way first Mm -hmm. so that we can focus on the good stuff. Because I I really do like this film. But I'm just going to go out there and say it. The only reason this film could even cl- come close to working on a just just a film standpoint. We'll, we'll get to all the the other things later. But as a film, this would be like a C movie if it wasn't for Clint being a really great actor. Yeah. And that's because the script is terrible, the dialogue is terrible, and the acting is terrible outside <laughs> of Clint. So, and I'm just going to put it that bluntly. I don't, I don't know how you guys feel about it. Well, I mean, Cliff has been doing this thing of late where he really likes to use untrained actors in his movies. It's a very, uh, very neorealist thing he's been working on here. And this <laughs> culminated a few years back. He did this movie called The 1517 to Paris. And it was about this real life story of a train that got hijacked. And there were some American uh, Marines or some sort of soldiers on board that thwarted the attempt. And Clint recreated this as a film using the real people as his actors. And it is a, it's a difficult movie to watch because they are not good actors. And it's I feel a, like I feel like that's a therapist pipe dream. <laughs> like like he, he paid you to recreate the traumatic experience you had to go through. Oh, man. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Right. So anyway, I mean, in this movie, he does the same thing. And. This movie was completed in like 32 days, I think, was the shooting schedule on this movie. And we talked a bit about this last week. Clint likes to go at a breakneck pace. He likes to use the first take uh, almost always and never really does a second take of anything. And in this movie, he said it was especially important because a lot of his actors didn't speak English. And so he was giving them basic acting 101 kind of things and then would take what he got and go on to the next thing. I guess my question is. Why do you do that, Clint Eastwood? Because (laughs) you're right, man. Like, I I really think that outside of Clint Eastwood and maybe one or two bit parts, there's not very much good acting happening in this movie. Mm -mm. It's very strange that he does this, as you point out, because if you're going to use non-actors or let's say first time actors, I could understand the value of doing that if you wanted to really shape their performance. Mm -hmm. But Clint Eastwood does not do that. You know, he famously, as uh, he only shoots one or two takes, he famously doesn't give his actors a lot of direction. He doesn't even say action when he's starting a, a, a take because he wants to keep everything as relaxed as possible, which also might make sense if he was going for some sort of naturalistic documentary feel in his films, you know, but this is like melodrama. It's like myth. And to have actors who clearly are doing the first acting they've ever done in their life, it just, it doesn't make a lot of sense. No. Not at all. I mean, and here's the thing, though, Brad, and I was kind of texting you about this as I was watching the film. The two main I don't want to call them kid actors, but let's be honest, like they're they're probably teenagers. So I'll call them the two main kid actors. I give a pass to in a lot of ways because they at least to this point were not really professional actors. And I think they've both had acting gigs since then. The one that really got me is the guy that plays the priest. And we were talking about this. Brad, you and I are very sensitive to portrayals of ministers on film as two guys Mm -hmm. who went through seminary and uh, are still very in tune with that side of things. I appreciate what Clint tries to do or what the script tries to do with that character. But especially in the first four or five scenes where the priest shows up, it's like he needed a second take, man, because the dialogue is so forced and so hard (laughs) Hard for this guy to get through it like it was it was a bad performance, Brad. Yeah, it it really was. I mean, if he's trying to 
give a honest look at a really awkward, you know, Catholic priest, then man, he nailed it. <laughs> but as far as like adding to the plot and give you something just to enjoy as you watch, you know, because that's kind of why we watch movies. Uh, there, there wasn't much there, Bob. I, I wanted to punch that. I mean, maybe that was the thing. He wanted to punch the priest in the face, and I kind of did too. I do, I do think that's part of it. You know, and, and I, I did think we're supposed to also be annoyed by this priest and find him insufferable. But at the end, we're supposed to sort of admire him. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I, I didn't at all. But I, I think I think maybe... <laughs> Uh, maybe you're onto something though. Like, I wonder if part of what's going on is that he wants to be the best actor in the movie, you know, like he wants Mm. the movie to center around him and he doesn't want to be challenged. I mean, honestly, that priest, the guy who played the priest, he looked like he was intimidated by Clint Eastwood and I could see that working for the character, uh, but it didn't work in the film because he's not a good actor. And I, I think maybe, maybe Clint's ego is getting the better of him in this case. I will step in and defend him a little bit. His name is Christopher Carley. The script does him no favors, and this is especially apparent towards the end of the movie where the best scene featuring the priest is he comes over to Walt's house after uh, like this horrific act of violence has happened. And basically, it seems like he's consenting to or at least acknowledging that Walt's about to go kill some people and he drinks a beer and he's like, you know, like, screw it. Like, what can you do? Kind of a thing. And it's like, oh, okay. like Clint is really showing that this priest is a real person, too, and he doesn't have all the answers. And then the very next scene, Mm -hmm. Clint goes back to church and it's as if the whole prior scene hadn't happened. It's like they relive the same conversation and the priest has a completely different take on it now. And I, I, it really threw me because there was like no link between those two scenes whatsoever. And it almost seemed like. You could have had one or the other, but he used both. And and it really hurt, I think, for me, at least the character's reputation. And it also really negatively impacted how I evaluated that performance. Yeah, 100 percent. Like when when he's yelling after him, what what are you going to do, Walt? And then like you see him. I don't know if it's the next scene, but soon after you see him at this house where he knows that there's going to be violence and. He he's like imploring these police officers to say stay, and then they're frog marching him into their car, leaving. And I'm like, that doesn't happen in real life. <laughs> like that, like that scene was the most egregiously just dumb, and should not have been a part of the movie. The, the cops saying like, nuts. we have strict orders to keep you wherever we go. Like, no, you don't. Yeah. Yeah, just, like <laughs> the taxpayers are not funding this. Come on, man. <laughs> well, between that and the confession scene, it is almost like there was a late, uh, late stage effort. Like we have to make the priest more sympathetic or we have mm. to give him more authority in the film or something. And may- maybe it's just the filmmaker losing his nerve a little bit or trying to satisfy a, a Catholic audience or something like that. Who knows? But it does seem to come out of nowhere at that stage of the movie. So this is a good segue, I think, into talking about the script a little bit and also going back to, Brad, your initial statement that this movie doesn't work if it's not for Clint. And I think that's true on like a number of levels. It doesn't work if not for Clint because Clint's the best actor in this movie by leaps and bounds, but also because without Clint in this movie, then this movie is not a commentary upon anything else other than like what's on the page. And when you look at the script, it's written by a guy named Nick Schenk who then becomes kind of Eastwood's go-to guy for his last few movies. He's had Shank write all of them. 
And uh, he said that this script had been kicking around Hollywood for quite a while and no one wanted to produce it. And all of a sudden Eastwood picks it up. He films the movie in 32 days and then it comes out and Shank says that he went and saw the movie and Eastwood didn't change a word of the script. And he was amazed. Like, I can't believe this didn't go through a bunch of revisions. And I think it's because Eastwood is so concerned at this stage of his career with making movies that allow him to comment on the things that he feels he needs to comment on before he retires, that the script kind of doesn't matter to him. <laughs> like, I was thinking about this with Million Dollar Baby when we were rewatching it for a bonus episode that's coming up, Brad. And that is a significantly better script than this movie. But I also don't know that everything in that script is is intended for East. Like, Eastwood's not intending that to be a commentary on everything that he wants to do but he he takes these scripts that give him opportunities like in this movie it's a it's an opportunity to kind of go back to the unforgiven well and do the whole i'm commenting on this phase of my life the dirty harry's the vigilante kind of thing and the effects of that and i just kind of wonder like is that really the best approach because i feel like eastwood is probably a smart enough guy that he could have doctored this script a little bit himself instead of just taking it verbatim because again like the first, I don't know, Brad, what would you say? 30, 35, 40 minutes of the movie are legit bad. Yeah, they are. And it feels like he just continues throughout the whole movie to just give you little like vignettes of what's happening. And then there's an awkward transition and we're just on to the next vignette of something that feels very surface level. Hmm. And I, I think that's the big problem with no revisions here on the script is that every single part of this film takes a lot of digging to get to anything meaningful. And I, I think the reason this works, Bob, or I, I guess I should say, I think the reason this worked for the public, this is going to, Bob, I'm, I'm venturing into your territory here. <laughs> yes, the snobbery. Like, I can feel it coming off of you right now, man. Yeah, <laughs> this film plays well to an audience that's just like, man, like, yeah, we shouldn't be racist, but like, he's pointing out some truths here. Yeah, but see, here's the thing. I, and this is crazy. I feel like we are in opposite political sides that we normally are, Brad. Like, I really think that this movie is doing a lot more covertly than it seems like it is, because Everything seems like it's right out in the open. And like like you said, the uh, the Jesus symbolism at the end and the very obvious racial dialogue that is throughout the movie. But then you get like little little things in the background sometimes, even the way shots are framed. Like every time you see an American flag behind Walt in this movie, it's when he's doing something that is abhorrent. Like <laughs> it's when he's being racist or it's when he's threatening somebody. And it's this really interesting little thing that Eastwood's throwing in. He doesn't comment on it, but it's like only when Walt is doing things that we as Americans don't like, you know, at least that we wouldn't admit that we like is when he is showing American icon iconography in the background. So, like, it's it's really interesting because I think that you can read this movie in the most surface level way possible, but there is a lot going on under the surface. But I, I think that's the issue is that he didn't take the time with it. I, the The subject matter and the way the script goes about it is so uh, difficult hmm. that he needed to spend more time with it to draw out those nuances 
so that the audience would get those things more easily. I don't think anybody would, uh, from the average movie-going population, would be like, huh, every time he's an a-hole, there's an American flag in the background. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. I get it. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right, Noah, set us straight here a little bit. Like, I mean, do you think that there's a lot under the surface here, or do you think it is a pretty easy-to-understand surface-level movie? No, I think you're both right, and I think it's what makes this uh, both an engaging experience watching this movie and a frustrating one. Um, I will say, I think I think we might be giving him a little too much credit when we try to uh, determine uh, the origins of his methods of not changing the words of the screenplay and not giving his actors any direction and only doing one takes. Like, is it possible he just doesn't really want to do things? Like he, <laughs> he just wants to have a nice day at the office and go home. I mean, yeah. I don't, you know, in a way that's, that's fine. I mean, the movies turn out okay, but I do think they would maybe turn out better uh, if he paid a little more attention to some of the details. If he made, if he, if he tightened the script up, I think you could lose some stuff from the script. Frankly, one of the things I liked a lot about the movie because it's sort of a pet issue for me is the, the portrayal of just what it's like to be in a old person, you know, like the mm-hmm. way his kids treat him, the way his grandkids treat him. Uh, I don't know that I had ever quite seen it portrayed that way before. And yet I think that's quite realistic. I mean, my wife is a realtor. She sees people trying to kick their parents out of their homes all the time. And um, I really liked that part of the movie, although I don't really think it was necessary at all. Like, mm, I think yeah. you could have cut quite a lot of that stuff. We didn't need to see his son calling him trying to get lion's tickets out of him. Right. Um if they had focused a little more on on the relationship with the family and really tightened to stay tight on that, I think I think the film would have been a lot stronger. So it's one of those movies where it's about a lot of a lot of things, and it probably didn't need to be about that many things. The only reason that works, and we keep coming back to this point, is when you have a star of his just absolute magnetism at the mm-hmm. center of it to kind of tie it all together. Otherwise, I think this movie goes off into a, a million different places and. And I do think there's some lovely touches in the film. Um, I noticed the American flag stuff as well. And, and you know, I mean, a movie like this isn't that different than something Oliver Stone might have made in the 80s or 90s. This yeah. is a movie about the trauma of war in many, many ways. And that's, that's, that's probing and that's thoughtful. And we like those kinds of movies, but it's just so rough around the edges. And if we're sitting here asking if that's accidental or if it's on purpose, <laughs> if something has gone wrong. <laughs> Well, I will say, like, I'm going to give Clint a little bit of credit here, because as I'm thinking about this movie, I'm thinking to myself, like, yeah, I don't know if any any other filmmaker could have made this even more overt than Eastwood did. Like, it's certainly not subtle. And then you said <laughs> Oliver Stone. And I was like, oh, there's one. Like, like, <laughs> there's a guy who's, who's known for his subtlety. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm with you, man. I think that this is not a long movie. Like, it's an hour 55, something like that. And yet it feels like they probably could have trimmed this down to like a tight 90 and and really made it about the core story here, hinted at the stuff with the kids, dabbled in the stuff with Catholicism. But the whole priest storyline is really unnecessary. Uh, everything with his kids is really unnecessary. And I keep coming back to this idea of like the 35, 40 minute mark in the movie being where it picks up, because that's where it becomes a very kind of traditional standard narrative, uh, you know, complete with montage of him 
mentoring this kid. And it's not till that relationship gets established. And, you know, the character of Walt starts to soften a little bit. And there's there's some human connection made there. I found myself really enjoying this movie from that point on. And especially that final confrontation with Walt on the lawn of, you know, the, the gang member's house. It's cut really well. It's paced really well. There's some genuine suspense there. I think the movie really starts to click in that last hour, but it's just so uneven in the early going. Can we talk about his plan a little bit? Yes, please. Yes. So I just want to make sure I understand it correctly. His plan was to get killed by the gang in public in the hopes that the neighbors would be watching and be willing to testify against the gang. Is that correct? Yes. Which which relies on a lot of things because of it, things. <laughs> it looked it looked like the Howard Beale scene in Network, like everyone coming to their windows and being like, what? Because you have to <laughs> imagine that the neighbors have seen this sort of thing a hundred times before. And not only are they going to their windows to look, they're like putting themselves in the way of machine gun bullets to check out what Walt's doing. I just like the plan makes absolutely no sense. They've never seen Clint Eastwood do it. And that's the whole point. <laughs> 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 the, see, that's the thing. They believe in the white savior. He He's going to be the one to actually stand up to them. So they, they got to get a front row seat, man. I mean, it makes, again, no, like, it makes no sense. But it the reason it works is because we're not just watching it as a movie. We're watching it as a Clint Eastwood movie. And we're, exactly. watching, we're watching him and instead of Unforgiven, where he uses violence to stop violence. In this movie, he refuses to pick up that gun. He refuses yeah. to use violence and sacrifice himself instead. And we see that as an evolution. And maybe a, a moving, a moving evolution. Do you think that the choice to give him, yeah, I would assume, lung cancer almost takes away from that sacrifice? I do. Yes. He doesn't okay. need to be dying. That, that for me, was the most confusing thing where I'm like, if you really want to make that sacrifice meaningful, you shouldn't make it like, well, he's going to die in three months anyways. So I might as well die for this kid that I kind of like. Like. Yeah. There's just, there's too many little loose threads hanging off of this plot. They really could have yeah. tightened it up. I do. Th- I, we keep coming back to this idea of like the white savior movie. And around this time is when I think that the the discourse started to really emerge about white savior movies, because the following year after this is when Avatar comes out. And that's when everyone's like, you know what? F- the Last Samurai, f- Grant Reno, f- Avatar. Like it's just like everybody was like done with these kind of movies at this point. I do think that in some ways, though, this movie does comment on that a little bit, even while using the genre or like the form of that, because Eastwood is clearly commenting on his Dirty Harry persona here. But the solution is the exact opposite of what Dirty Harry would have done. And for me, the key scene in this movie, the, the most moving scene in this movie is after his neighbor's house gets shot up. And uh, the the neighbor girl, Sue, is raped and she comes home like bloodied and bruised. And when she finally emerges inside the house and Eastwood sees her for the first time, he drops his glass. Eastwood plays that scene beautifully. But it's the first time in the movie that the movie like overtly acknowledges this guy's plans, this guy's anger, this guy's trauma and woundedness from the war and thinking that he has to treat everything as if it is the war is having this kind of effect on other people. And like it, he is actively screwing everything up for everybody else. And that's not the that's not the kind of consideration that you typically get in a quote unquote 
white savior movie, which is like my presence here is actually actively hurting everybody. And I did like that they folded in that touch because I don't know what it looks like on the page. I don't know if that realization hits as hard in just the script, but Eastwood really did, I think, make sure that that was felt, you know, from a director standpoint. I think that's a great, great point. And, and, you know, obviously that plays out where he locks Tao in the basement and refuses to let him get hurt. He realizes this is something he has to do himself. Uh, I, I think it's well done and I think it does make the movie complex. You know, it also maybe gets a little bit erased by the literal white saviorism at the end. You know, sure. the fact that he does uh, that sacrifice, I think, is kind of overpowers any complexity in some ways uh, to the film. But you're right that it's a nice touch. And that, that moment stood out to me as well. The dropping of the glass is really uh, well directed, that sequence, to to give it a lot of impact. And I, I'm curious because having watched Unforgiven two weeks ago, it was to me, I don't know if this is an obvious homage or, you know, reversal, but Unforgiven, in order for him to enter the game again, he has to drink and, you know, you have that great shot of him and the kid and he just takes the bottle and starts drinking when he finds out that Morgan Freeman is dead. And yet here he's drinking the entire movie. And when does he stop drinking when he realizes he needs to take action? Oh, interesting. And I, I just thought that was an interesting thing. I, I don't know if Clint thought about that, but. I think that we're probably thinking about this movie more than any three people on earth have ever thought about this movie. And that means that it's probably time for us to hit pause, Brad. We need to start drinking this whiskey, the third in our lineup of benchmark products. So we're going to try this single barrel. We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about this movie and we'll, we'll segue into talking about things we liked. So what do you say? Let's get to it. So here's the deal, everybody. We just absolutely love producing as much content as possible for Film and Whiskey Nation. But if our regular episodes aren't enough for you, then you can head on over to patreon.com slash filmwhiskey, sign up for one of our memberships, and you will get a slew of extra content for your listening pleasure. Check us out on patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. All right, everybody. Today we are drinking Benchmark Single Barrel, a 95-proof whiskey in this lineup of five that we've been drinking the last few weeks. Yeah, we're slowly moving up in proof point. We started at 80 proof. We moved to 90 last week with the small batch. Oh, you're right. You're right. 86 to 90. And now we're at 95 proof. I think this is the first time I've ever seen 95 proof on something, Brad. Like, I think you're right. Like I've Elijah seen a few, Craig, like 90... I think is 94. Yeah. And I've seen yeah, 92, I've... 94, but never like right in between 90 and a hundred. Yeah. Good job. Benchmark. You, t- <laughs> you did it. <laughs> My wife and I, we, uh, we shared this image back and forth every once in a while. It's from like, do you remember years and years ago when cake fails was a thing on, uh, on the internet? Like I cakes that got real. Know. All right. Well, there was a whole website of like people that bought <laughs> cakes from the store and stuff was, was misspelled was this or... on, on that. On that, like, v- Vine? Vine? What, what was that website? <laughs> Vine. 
<laughs> so uh, there's a there's an image of a cake, and it was supposed to say like congratulations, and, and the cake says congration, and then under congration it says you done it. And so every time either of us accomplishes something very small, we'll just text each other the picture of congration. You done it. Yeah. So this seems like a perfect congration moment for benchmarks. (laughs) All right. Uh, I'm a little nervous about this, Brad, because we don't typically like single barrels for the purposes of reviews. And that's because whatever you pick up on the shelf, dear listener, is going to be different than the barrel that we're currently drinking. <laughs> and I want you to to do our whiskey segment as if you're writing a letter in like 1943, <laughs> the the French front. My dearest Dolores, <laughs> I write this I am... to assuage myself of the guilt I feel. From yeah, okay. So anyway. Uh, I'm a little worried about it is all I'm saying. And after last week, you know, we we were split a little bit because you liked the small batch more than I did. I liked the top floor from week one a little bit better. And now we're getting into single barrel where some of the rougher edges of a barrel may not be rounded out so much by blending. Mm-hmm. Yep. And especially since they're cutting it down to 95 proof. I just don't understand single barrels that don't release at barrel strength. And I don't mean to be like a barrel strength snob about it. And there's always some good ones. Like Russell's reserve is always really good at like whatever that is 110 proof or whatever that one might be. But it it feels like 95 is a, is a long ways off from wherever this barrel. Yes. A hundred percent. That's my issue with it. I don't know, man. I'm ready to dive in. Uh, Before we start sniffing this thing, how much is it going to set you back, Brad? Uh, this is, I think, the most expensive of the lineup at $25. Wow, 25 We have really upped it here from the 18 we yeah. spent last week. So, yeah. you know, we do it for you, Film and Whiskey Nation. We spent 25 <laughs> whole American dollars on this. Dropping the big bucks. This seems like a Walt Kowalski kind of bourbon, though. Like, this, this seems yeah. like the kind of thing you reach for after pounding some PBRs on your porch. Yeah, I was going to say the the fact that it has words after benchmark, I think would turn him off to it. <laughs> I feel I feel like he's a benchmark kind of guy. Ten dollars. Yep. yep. <laughs> All right, Brad, what are you picking up on the nose of this benchmark single barrel? Uh, there's there's stuff, mm-hmm. Bob. There's mm-hmm. uh, for for me, it was sour apple, um, like a light brown sugar. Like like specifically, it's not a dark brown sugar. It's very light. And ethanol. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever gotten an ethanol, you know, <laughs> nose before, but but it's here. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what I'm picking up. When I first poured it into the glass, it had this almost artificially caramel smell, like a caramel sauce that you get out of a jar for ice cream topping. <laughs> Car- caramel sauce. Yeah. You know, like the things they squirt in your drink at Starbucks that's called caramel sauce. Mm-hmm. It's not caramel. Yes. Caramel sauce. Yep. Yeah, a hundred percent. It smelled like that. And then that went away and it was replaced with the artificial green apple, like Jolly mm-hmm. Rancher. Yep. Just covered up in oak and ethanol. So oh, you know what it is? What? It's the it's the green apple caramel suckers that you buy. I want to compare it to that, but those are so much better than this. That, that it's like it's those not are fair to good. the sucker, you know. So <laughs> I'm gonna give this a six out of ten. It's not like offensive. It's just there's not really much here, and the ethanol yeah. is pretty prominent. I, I'm at a five and a half. Uh, it, it's it's okay. Um, when I got into the actual palate, it got a little worse. Like like it still is sticking in that tart green apple. 
I got a little bit of cinnamon going on here. And then there's, for me, it was just a lot of corn coming through. Wow. Yeah, man, this is, uh, I'm sipping it live. I know you've already tried it, but artificial green apple candy. And I've never Mm -hmm. tasted a whiskey. You know, I've had like crown apple and I, you know, we've tried a really lovely one from uh, Traverse City. Their Michigan apple is phenomenal. Dude, it's so good. This doesn't have like the candy flavor of that, but it's just it's like the LaCroix of Jolly Ranchers <laughs> and really harsh ethanol to go with it. It's it's it mimics like a spiciness, but it's not spicy at all. I don't get a lot of baking mm-hmm. spice on this. It's really just candy apple and ethanol, and it's pretty right down the middle with that. Again, not offensive, but just not really that good. And it's crazy to me that the top floor was 10 times as complex as this. Yes. Uh, But once again, I'm only going to give it a six on the flavor. I I give it a five on the flavor, Bob. Mm. I'm really struggling with this one compared to the top shelf and the small batch. This is drinking a lot hotter than 95 proof. I almost don't even mean to say hotter, but like once in a while we talk about this idea of the Kentucky hug where Mm -hmm. your your esophagus cries out for help as the... uh, as the whiskey travels down it. <laughs> and this one, it, it not only is it crying out for help, but like, I feel like I have heartburn. I feel like I need a Tums after this because of the way that it is just like camping out in my chest. I, and Buffalo Trace does this sometimes. Usually for me, Buffalo Trace products present as a little more oaky than they are ethanol. But man, this one is just really heavy on the alcohol, like forwardness. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and that's why for me, the finish, I, I gave it a five and a half. It's almost like a soured oak, a little bit of vanilla. Mm-hmm. The, the the tart, almost sour apple continues on through to the end. Uh, it's not a terrible finish, but it's not great. I had just a little bit left in the bottom of my Glencairn, and it's not like enough for a sip, but it's just enough to kind of get the tip of your tongue wet again. And it was really saline heavy. Like I, I, I didn't pick up on the saltiness of it before, but it actually was a lot better. It tastes like salted caramel. I just don't think that's really present while you're drinking it. And the finish is almost non-existent, except for that Kentucky hug to remind you of what you've just been drinking. There's nothing left on my palate except for some very, very subtle corn and oak. Uh, I'm just going to give it like a five on the finish. Yeah. And, and with balance, I'll, I'll give it a five as well. It's just average all around, and there's not there's not enough complexity and not enough good flavors here to give it any higher on a score. Yeah, I'm gonna give it a five and a half. I'm with you. I again, like I always feel bad giving anything like a five or less, just because we so rarely actually go under the halfway mark on our scores, Brad. Like it's mm-hmm. really rare that you get less than a twenty five out of fifty. If you age a whiskey to four years and put it in a bottle and it gets to our glass. It's at least a 50 out of 100 most times. Yeah. And so yeah, like, no, I'm, I'm going to give it a five and a half on the balance. But you're right. Everything you've said, I agree with. And that brings us to value at twenty five dollars. This is a terrible value. <laughs> this is yeah. really, really bad value when you can get the benchmark top floor for 15 bucks. That is like week after week. That thing is doing nothing but improve in my mind. This yep. one is like. I don't know, a three out of 10 on value. That's that's what I gave it. Yeah. I mean, I will say to get a single barrel bourbon at twenty five dollars is pretty much unheard of. But 
that's why this is a $25 single barrel bourbon. Mm-hmm. Like this would not be good enough to bottle under any of uh, Buffalo Trace's other labels as a single barrel. And right. they just kind of slapped benchmark on it to indicate value. And I don't think it's a very good value. I'm coming out to a 25.5 out of 50, Brad. Yeah, with, with that three out of 10 on value, I'm coming to a 24 out of 50. All right, so we are just at a 49.5 out of 100. So we actually are under that 50 mark or a 24.75 out of 50. I am not going to recommend buying. I am not going to recommend trying with the small caveat. This is a single barrel. So I have no idea what the variation between barrels looks like for a product like Benchmark where they're going for value above all else. Yeah, I, I I think that it's safe to say that this is a reject from some other, you know, lineup and that there's just other really great values in the benchmark six that are worth picking up. I mean, I, if I'm being very blunt with you, Bob, I think I would prefer to drink $10 benchmark over this. I probably would, too. I mean, I'd have to try them side by side, but they are at least comparable enough that it gets me a little angry to think about the fact that benchmark and this are similar (laughs) and there's a $15 difference in price. I think we need to demand our money back from party source. (laughs) All right, man, let's get back into talking about Gran Torino. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right, everybody. That was benchmark single barrel, a whiskey that we drank. We sure did. And uh, (laughs) that's, that's pretty much all we can say about it, Brad. Yeah, that's it, man. But now we'll leave that experience behind and we look forward to Canada's favorite segment, Two Facts and a Falsehood. Brad is going to try to stump you both to our right and what is wrong. Two Facts and a Falsehood. Two Facts and a Falsehood. This is the part of the podcast where Brad presents three items as fact about the making of this movie, one of which he has completely made up, and it is my job to determine which one is the lie. Luckily, I have a guest here with me today that I can use as a phone a friend. Uh, as we all know, Noah is an expert in the making of the movie Gran Torino. Uh, so I'll be calling on him for some help here. Brad, I can't imagine that there were a lot of trivia things about the making of this movie since it only took like five days to shoot. Yeah, the the list was a little bit shorter than most IMDb lists. Yeah, I will say, important caveat, we usually call these facts from the IMDb trivia page. So, uh, you know, we're going to put the word fact in quotes on this, but only one of them was actually generated by Brad. I, I was going to say that that's the key thing is that one of them I completely made up. And the and other two, two of them someone came else out of the internet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I hope you at least pick right, ones that 90% of IMDb users found interesting, because that seems <laughs> yeah. to be a pretty good metric. <laughs> yeah, I love that, like, five out of five people found this helpful. Like, okay, yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry that my knowledge of this movie wasn't helpful for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dude, hit me with your two facts and a falsehood. All righty. Fact number one. Ford Grand Torinos were built in, uh, this is my editorial comment, God's greatest gift to mankind, the beautiful state of Ohio. Uh, They were built in Lorain, Ohio, Mm. 145 miles from Detroit, Michigan, whilst truck could have been built in Wayne, Michigan, 20 miles from Highland Park. 
Okay. Fact number two. Walt's dog, Daisy, is actually Clint Eastwood's beloved family retriever in real life. Hmm. What was, uh, what was the dog's name? Uh, Daisy. Actually Daisy? Oh, that was not a part of either my making it up or the IMDb trivia page. <laughs> all right, who's, all right, cool. Who's to say? Uh, fact number three, the production of the film was delayed in early 2008 by a few months due to unforeseeable conflict of the government bailout of the big three motor companies, and the studio was deciding whether or not it would be profitable to attach the vehicle's name to their movie. Oh, interesting. Huh. Well, okay, hold on. Noah, you got to help me out here. Uh, fun fact about Noah. This is an actual fact. Uh, you used to be a, a uh, in the political realm. That's true. So was, was the was the bailout in the Obama administration, though? No, it happened during the campaign. So okay. it, it did happen in 2008, I believe. OK, I was thinking like, oh, man, that might have been like one of the first things that happened under the Obama administration. Now, but, I remember okay, so, those guys, Obama and McCain, like going back uh, to D.C. during the campaign to to hold very important meetings about the, the bailout. Interesting. OK. All right, listen, uh, I'm leaning towards two being the falsehood just because, you know, there's no name on this dog. This this seems like an important part of the fact to leave out. <laughs> Number one sounded true enough. And this is the key with Brad, Noah, is that if it sounds plausible, Brad probably didn't write it. So <sighs> can I say something about the dog? Yeah, go for it. I, I think, you know, that dog was very well trained and. Based on what we're kind of determining about Clint Eastwood's work ethic, that I'm not sure he would have taken the trouble to train that dog. But it, but he's also too prideful to let somebody else train it really well. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it's not as if they asked the dog to do a lot. Like the dog just laid on the porch. I think you could train most dogs to do that. So uh, I'll go out on a limb here so that we, we won't put Noah's reputation up on the line. Brad, I'm going to say two's the falsehood. That uh, Walt's dog, Daisy, is actually Clint Eastwood's dog? Yes, that's my final answer. That is a truth, No! Robert. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. All right, fact, so what is, what's the fact, falsehood? Fact number three was the falsehood. Man. They were, they were not concerned about the impact of the auto bailout on the film. <laughs> nope. They sure weren't. <laughs> Seems obvious in retrospect. <laughs> I was about to say, I was like, I finished writing that one. And I was like, I don't have the energy to write a different one, but I think this might be one of my worst. That's hilarious. Yeah, I guess that's true. Like the the, the uh, studio execs would have just been like, Ford's back, baby. Let's <laughs> let's feature them as prominently as possible. All right. So I have dropped to one and two on the season, man. This is not good. No. <laughs> All right, guys. So we're steering out of my colossal failure in two facts and a falsehood. And we're going to steer back into talking about, hey, steer ah. back into talking about <laughs> Gran Torino. Car metaphors. Things we liked about this movie. And I, again, I'll say I liked this movie quite a bit. And when I texted you, Brad, during my watch of it, I was around that 40-ish minute mark. And my exact words to you were Gran Torino es no bueno. <laughs> and uh, it got a lot more bueno after that. Mm -hmm. It yeah. just like it's a good movie, and I feel like we spent a half hour talking about all the things they could have fixed with it. But I would like to go in a little bit on what you thought was successful about this film. 
Well, for me, what I thought was successful is something that you guys kind of hammered in the first half. I don't know if I actually think that this is a white savior movie. Why is that? Well, so you guys you guys talked a lot about how the family portion of the film just wasn't necessary. And I actually think for me, at least in my final interpretation of the film, those were actually some of the most necessary parts. I'm with you that the Catholic priest, you can get rid of him. He was useless. But the family segments, even as poorly acted as they are, uh, the the sons feel like they belong in a really good Christian movie. <laughs> um, but I think that what you have here is a movie about how a person has grown old. The entire world has changed around him. His children don't care about him. His wife has died. And he finds refuge in a place that he never expected to have found it. Hmm. And so in the end, he fights and sacrifices himself for that new family. And so the the impact of that for me was to say that Walt isn't going to die for his children. Like his children have abandoned him. And as he slowly moves from a place of of racism into understanding this this group of people who he did not like before, they become a people that save him from a meaningless life and a meaningless existence. Because if he doesn't die for Tao, then he looks at his life and goes, what the heck was the point? Like I have these kids who suck and grandkids who are even worse. And I've amounted to nothing. And yet now he has somebody who is worth dying for. He has a family that he cares about. And in a certain sense, they save him from a a meaningless life. What you have just described is the exact plot of the movie Avatar. Mm. No, but for real. Uh, So so here's what I'll say. I think we need to define our terms a little bit because we've been using this term white savior movie. And I, I think that... You know, in some regards, it's a you know it when you see it kind of movie. But I think a really great example is the movie The Last Samurai, which I love. I love that movie. It's a good movie. But it is the idea that a typically white male enters into a culture that is not his own and a culture that has an insurmountable problem that needs to be solved that the, you know, the quote unquote natives in that environment can't do themselves. And only through the help of the white male can they be saved. And I think, Brad, that I hear what you're saying, but I I think that this is the perfect corollary to this is Unforgiven. And I've seen a lot of people call Unforgiven an anti-Western, and it's not an anti-Western. Like, there's a lot of movies set in the American West that are not Westerns. Unforgiven is 100% a Western. It's a Western that's commenting on Westerns. And I think in the same way, like I kind of hinted at that, this in the first half, I think this is a white savior movie that is commenting on white savior movies because in very few of these movies, do the characters actually have to reckon with the effects of them bringing their culture and their arrogance and their dominance into the environment that they're in. And I think this movie does that really well. But I do hear you in that, like, Walt's isolation is like a huge key. And Noah, you were talking about this, too. Like the the kids thing is a big part of this movie. His kids rejecting him. 
is what kind of separates this, I think, from a lot of other movies that you could call a white savior movie. You know, I think, Brad, what what you were saying made me think about it a little differently, which is, you know, when I think of a white savior movie, I think of a movie also something like uh, The Help, you know, which is is supposedly, which is purportedly about uh, this marginalized group, right? Is it about mm-hmm. people in in a prior era who were discriminated against, marginalized, oppressed? That is what the movie's about. That's the the points the movie is is trying to win from the audience, right? Except the only way that it can do that is by framing it at, through through a white character's eyes, right? Mm-hmm. And having a white character lift them out of poverty or oppression or whatever. Give them a voice. Exactly. And the one thing I will say in favor of Gran Torino not being a white savior movie is there is not any moment in this movie that I think Gran Torino is about the Hmong people. It's not. It is about Clint Eastwood's character, 100%. He doesn't, Mm -hmm. I, I think it is interested in discrimination against them and the challenges that they face, but not that interested. I yep. think it's much more interested in Clint Eastwood's attitude towards them. So that either makes it the most white savior-y movie, or it makes it not one at all because it's not it's not selling itself as a film that like has something meaningful to say about that group of people. Yeah. No, I, I'm a hundred percent with you. I as I was kind of percolating this idea of it not being a white savior movie, it hit me. I was like, this movie is is so deeply cemented in Walt's point of view. And like it, the honestly the most white saviory thing that happens is when he's teaching Tao how to do these things, you know, like care for his home and you know re chip paint off the thing and repaint the homes and all that. Like that's fine. Tao's a young kid, but it's when he's sending Tao to like fix up other Hmong people's homes that it's like, oh, none of these people know how to care for a home unless Clint comes in and helps them. Like that, like that's the only thing that for me really like strongly smacks of white saviorism. But the rest of it, like you said, Noah, feels like it's honing in on his isolation and what's going to save him from that. Hmm. I did like those scenes of him and Tao hanging out, getting along. It's 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 felt very um uh, formulaic to me like a you know a man called Otto I haven't seen a man called Otto but I assume something like that happens in it mm-hmm. uh an old grumpy man um you know learns to open up by being around a kid oh, that yeah, is man. really that's good stuff listen I I I ate that movie up I was like this is terrible and I love it I <laughs> did not enjoy a man called Otto <laughs> whatsoever <laughs> um all right real quick I want to touch on something that we really haven't talked about very much Brad and that is Eastwood as composer. So we mentioned it. I think you mentioned it in your two facts and a falsehood on Unforgiven. And we talked about it a little bit last week with Mystic River and how the weird major chords in that movie don't work for us. But here it Eastwood does something that's probably the most egregious thing I've ever heard him do as a composer. And I kind of still loved it. And it's when at multiple points in the movie, you're you're immediately attuned to the fact that he was a Korean war vet. And at multiple points in the movie, they play these, like when Johnny comes marching in drums underneath Mm -hmm. Eastwood's actions. And I kind of loved it. And it's a terrible score. Like I would never turn this on in the car to listen to like, (laughs) however, 
once again, I think it's this really obvious but kind of neat thing that he does of commenting on a certain thing. And it's like, you could read that as, hell yeah, Clint Eastwood's going to ride into battle and kill these guys or like, you know, justifying his vengefulness and his anger. But it's really not. I think it's 100 percent, you know, because that that theme stops once Walt has that confrontation with the consequences of his actions in the home of his neighbor. It is very much a comment on like he has been trained by what he did in the military and by the trauma that has, has been caused by that throughout his life to retaliate as if he needs to go into battle. And so when they play that theme, you as an audience member are not supposed to be like rooting for him or, you know, perhaps it's like implicating us in our own like mm -hmm. desire to see Clint Eastwood kill people because it's fun to yeah. watch Clint Eastwood kill people. Yeah. I just I really liked that little touch. And I know that like yeah, you guys have both already said I'm giving Eastwood way too much credit. And I didn't think this would be the movie <laughs> that I would do it with <laughs> like over against even Unforgiven. But it's really nice to see him still dealing with those same themes, even into, you know, 2008 with this movie. For me, all of the uh, little drum drum rolls that they, he gives himself, I thought that it was just kind of like a, a callback to be like, hey, have you ever heard of PTSD? <laughs> this is it. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah but I, they can't do it as like another, a... I can't name another movie that does that, but I feel like a hundred other movies have done that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just I love that it was like this rah rah beat. You know, they could have made like a, a really eerie strings or something when he's having PTSD, but they play it as if it's, you know, the revolutionary war. And <laughs> like it's just just a really interesting choice. And there is another interesting choice that, Noah, you were saying that you wanted to mention as well. I did. Yes. Uh, it goes like this. Gentle now, the tender breeze blows whispers through my grand Torino. <laughs> and those are the lyrics to the song. That Clint Eastwood inexplicably sings or mm -hmm. rasps, I think would be a better yeah. word, <laughs> yeah. over the closing credits of this movie. Is it Clint Eastwood or is it Tom Waits? Are we sure? <laughs> or is it like late era Bob Dylan that is perhaps singing that song? There's a fine line between rasping well and rasping badly, but I, this, <laughs> this makes it a little clearer, I think. <laughs> uh, it just, it, it, it makes no sense to me why Clint Eastwood sang this song. He does not have a good voice. The lyrics are not good. Um, the song apparently was written by Jamie Cullum, who I don't really know who that is, but he seems to be a songwriter of some uh, uh, renown. Uh, <laughs> he got his song into a movie. I mean, have you ever done that, Noah? <laughs> no, certainly not. <laughs> certainly not. Okay, so I remember Jamie Cullum having like a really minor pop hit in the early 2000s. I don't remember what it was, but I, I remember the name. Did he also sing? There's like a song that plays over a montage in the movie, and it sounds like discount Coldplay. Do you know what I mean? It sounds like The Scientist by Coldplay, but not as good. That That's probably him. That sounds like Jamie Cullen. Okay. All right. Cool. I feel like he just he just got bodied by us, and he didn't even deserve <laughs> We don't it, even but... know who he is. <laughs> Wait, are we supposed to think that uh, Walt is singing that song from heaven? Is that yes. is that the vibe you're getting there? That's the only way to interpret it, Noah. <laughs> Let me tell you guys, I have never turned off a movie faster than like the second I saw the like, directed by Clint Eastwood. I was like, and I'm done because I heard three lines of that song and I was like, oh, I'm not doing this for a minute and a half. And uh, I'm glad I did. I heard I didn't even know that the, the words Gran Torino were in the song. 
Because I think I checked out before we got to that point. I mean, it, that, that's the thing is like, we want to talk about uh, this movie and how complex it is and how uh, ambiguous its portrayal of Walt is. But in the end, it's Walt singing a song from heaven about his car. I mean, the car, which is a symbol of this kind of old school masculinity, like it does make me, it does make me wonder in this final choice, how much Clint Eastwood really is ambivalent about all, all that's in the movie. Well, getting back to what you were saying in the first half of like, you know, maybe Eastwood just didn't want to do this or didn't want to do that. I mean, the guy has won two directing Oscars. He's won two best pictures. He's never won for acting, even though he's been nominated a couple times. And I think... You know, maybe he just comes back to do this movie because he's like, I want my acting Oscar and I want to be recognized for writing music. So I'm not only am I going to compose the score, I'm going to sing this song so that I can get on stage at the Oscars and sing my Oscar nominated best original song. Like, I, I wouldn't put it past him that that's what he's doing here. And it's a tragedy that it did not happen. Can you imagine seeing Clint Eastwood on stage at the Oscars singing this song? <laughs> we, yes, I, you I know can. what we've seen worse performances at the oscars <laughs> i just want like uh i want clint eastwood and jamie Collum to, to basically be doing the bradley cooper lady gaga shallow moment on stage together sharing a piano bench and canoodling while they sing this song or maybe what... sit, or maybe sing into an empty chair How, that <laughs> might work <laughs> All right, guys, before we wind down today, we do have one more segment left, and that is perhaps my favorite one, and it's called Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's struggling. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. This is the part of the podcast where we pick a movie to pair up with the film we've been reviewing to make the perfect double feature. Brad, I'm going to start with you because I've really been racking my brain to try to figure out what I want to pair this with, and I'm not sure. So I'm gonna I'm gonna vamp for a couple more seconds and let you go ahead and do it. Oh man, I I don't think this is a good pairing, Bob. But I'm gonna do it anyways. I'm gonna pair this movie with another film, largely about cars, and one that made car chases famous. I'm gonna pair it with Bullet. Oh, interesting. I don't honestly know why, other than the fact that the Gran Torino came out, you know, in the same era as all of the cars in Bullet. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that'd be a fun, fun little evening. Yeah, and on a bit of a lighter note with Bullet, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, Noah, how about you? Well, I've given this a lot of thought. Uh, and <laughs> I'm going to pair it with um, with Blue Collar which uh, to me is it's another movie set in Detroit mm. and uh, another film about uh, race relations, but one that's going to make Gran Torino look very bad in comparison because I think it has one of the more uh, thoughtful, nuanced portrayals of uh, race, labor issues, and uh, some other things uh, that, you will, that you will find in a movie. So I'd, do, I'd make it a Detroit double feature and, um, you know, Gran Torino is going to come out on the losing end on that one, unfortunately. There you go. Yeah, I mean, we could we could just pair it with a ton of Detroit movies. We do Beverly Hills Cop, uh, <laughs> the obvious man. choice. Well, he's from Detroit, Axel Foley. Um, yeah. Okay, here's what I'm gonna do, Brad. I'm gonna use my let's make it a double to uh, correct an error that I uh, an omission. So I said earlier that 
aside from Eastwood, there was only like one or two bit players that I thought were really good. And one of those is the character actor, John Carroll Lynch, who I love in every movie he does. Brad, we've had him on the show a couple times before he played Marge's husband in Fargo. He shows up here as the barber. And he doesn't really have a lot to do. Uh, it's one of the more like hashtag problematic parts in the movie because of what it's trying to say about like how men just break each other's balls. Like <laughs> like the init <laughs> the initiation rights of becoming a man. Um, but I really love him as an actor. We will get around to watching the movie Zodiac one day that he is phenomenal in. But for now, I want to pair it up with another movie that features him really prominently because he doesn't get enough uh, discussion as one of our great character actors. He is really fantastic in a movie that came out a few years ago called The Founder. And this is a movie about Ray Kroc, the guy who basically expanded the McDonald's empire, taking it away from the McDonald brothers who founded it. It's essentially the social network for baby boomers. It's a really good movie with Michael Keaton and John Carroll Lynch plays one of the McDonald brothers. And I just want to give the guy a little bit of love. I think that I would I would absolutely watch a double feature with this movie and Fargo to see him with this movie and Zodiac to see him. But I'm going to give a little bit of love to a movie I, I really, really liked called The Founder. Well, The Founder, that is a choice, Bob. <laughs> I, I think uh, very clear if, if interaction. Only, if only the McDonald brothers had held up Ray Kroc at gunpoint and said, get off my lawn. That, what might that, have been? Yeah, what might have been? We wouldn't all be consuming just terrible food for us all there the time. There you go. Man, that'd be a sad alternate, <laughs> alternate future, Bob. Well, guys, I, I think we've said a lot of things that have needed to be said about this movie. We probably could have gone a lot more deeply into certain areas, but I think we're kind of getting to that point. What are your guys' final scores for Gran Torino? Brad, I'm going to give this movie a seven and a half out of ten. I think that there are moments of this movie that are that are quite good. Like I would probably give parts of this movie an eight and a half out of ten. I would give the first 40 minutes of this movie about a three out of ten. Uh, and it, I guess it kind of washes out. It's a good movie. It is the worst of the three that we watched just from a filmmaking standpoint and especially from a scripting standpoint. But it's still worthwhile. And I didn't expect it to be worthwhile. And I think it's, to be frank, like kind of a minor miracle that it ended up being a worthwhile movie that is a pretty good feather in the cap for Clint Eastwood, even though he's still making movies 15 years later that we didn't expect him to be making. So it's a seven and a half for me. Yeah, I I don't know what to do with this because I, I remember walking away from it the first time I saw it and being like, oh, wow, I, I like that movie. That was, that was fine. That was good. And the second time I watched it being like, huh, this wasn't as good as I remember. There's there's some issues here. And then the this time, my third time watching it being like, oh, wow, there are some problems with this movie. And it's not just the the racial stuff like the like the acting and the script and, you know, even the way he transitions from from one scene to scene. It's kind of like he just was like, well, I'm done with that now. So I guess I'm going to start this new thing. Uh, I like this movie a lot. But I'm going to give it a six and a half. Oh, wow. OK, it's, it's the highest six and a half I would ever give it like, a film <laughs> where I'm like, yeah, I'd probably watch this again at some point. But it just doesn't really work for me. And yet it kind of does. I don't know, man. I'm all I'm all messed up here. There is like there's a part of me that 
completely understands that this is like your two and a half out of four star movie that you catch on AMC on a Saturday and you're like, yeah, I'll watch part of Gran Torino. Mm -hmm. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. You know, I think I agree with both of you. Like, this is not bad enough to be a six. Definitely not good enough to be an eight. Right. It's that kind of movie. Mm -hmm. The the thing about it is, as we've been talking about it, I feel my opinion of it getting lower and lower and lower. Because when you start (laughs) unpacking it and you see the contradictions and you see the flaws, it really doesn't hold together. But there is a power to the filmmaking. I mean, Eastwood knows what he's doing somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, he's getting home by dinner time, and he's making a good movie, and and he 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 does know how to do this. And I'm trying to put myself back in the space that I was in when I watched it, which was that was a pretty good movie. So I'm going to split your difference, and I think I think this is a straight seven. I love it. All right, so we are all coming out to an average of a seven out of ten, but we'd like to know what you think. Have you seen Gran Torino? Did you see it when it first came out 15 years ago? Have you reevaluated it since then? You can let us know your opinion on the movie by reaching out to us on our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Film Whiskey. Or jump onto the Discord. We are on there every single day talking to you guys, the fans of the Film and Whiskey podcast. So if you want to join, you can find a link to our Discord at the end of every single one of our show notes. Brad, we are leaving Clint Eastwood behind, and we are going in the Wayback Machine, Revisiting classic Hollywood for the first time in a while, I'm really glad to be thrown at way back to the 40s and 50s again, because we are going to be doing a mini series of films by one of our favorite directors, Billy Wilder, and we're kicking it off with what might be his masterpiece, 1950s Sunset Boulevard. Bro, I am like so jazzed to watch this movie and to, you know, to watch three Billy in a row. Yeah, I can't wait, man. Well, we want to say thank you again to Noah Gattel for joining us today. Noah, what do you have coming down the pike that you can plug here? Oh, okay. Well, nothing uh, urgent coming up. Uh, I would just encourage folks to uh, keep an eye on my Twitter account, which is Noah Gattel. That's two T's and two L's. And uh, like most folks, I have started a Substack over the last few months. It's called Good Eye. And it's about uh, movies and also about baseball quite a bit and a little bit about baseball movies. We did a mini, uh, like a bonus episode a few years ago, and we did the best baseball movies, and we shook out to, I think, (laughs) the final two were Moneyball for people who don't like baseball and A League of Their Own, which I know is the film that you have since crowned as the best baseball movie. I know that you're doing, uh, I think this coming weekend, you're doing like an intro of the movie. I am at the Metrograph in New York. Uh, it is my favorite baseball movie, uh, but Moneyball is the correct choice for people who are not baseball fans. That movie was not <laughs> designed for baseball people. Baseball people pick it apart, especially baseball players. I've spoken to quite a few of them, and uh, they really hate that movie. Uh, but I know a lot of folks who don't like baseball at all who think it's great. You guys aren't aren't going to put trouble with the curve up there? Your, oh, boy, right? your boy, Clint Eastwood? <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to do another pod on Trouble with the Curve. Right yeah, <laughs> listen, man, come back on. We'll revisit the uh, the power ranking of baseball movies and we'll, we'll dive deep on Trouble with the Curve. I would love to. All right, that does it for us this week. We will see you next Tuesday for Sunset Boulevard. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. 